just come before you. We just thank you for this opportunity to come before and look at your word. We ask that you lead and guide as we examine it. And if anybody else is on their way, that you bring them safely and that you will let us see what it is you want us to see in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. And you, son of man, take you a sharp knife and take you a barber's razor and cause it to pass over your head and upon your beard. Then take you the balance to weigh and divide the hair. And you shall burn with fire the third part in the midst of the city and when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And you shall take a third part and smite it again with a knife. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind and I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take thereof a few in number and bind them upon your skirts. Then take them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. For therefore shall a fire come forth unto, into all the house of Israel. So let's just look at this and then we'll get into what actually is happening here. Uh, this is an example that uh, Ezekiel is getting ready to do. In a, and we've said this before, Ezekiel did lots of crazy things that God had him do to to give the picture of what he's going to do. And so he tells him, get a sharp knife and a barber's razor and cause it to pass over your head and your beard, then take away and divide the hair. And this was something that is not done amongst Jews unless they're gonna take a vow or they're being shamed to, to shave off their head and their beard. And we remember in Leviticus, it says that they're not to cut the corners of their beards. And that's why when you see a, the Hasidic Jews, especially, they don't trim their beards at all. They just have these long, raggedy, old, bushy beards. And they kept their hair fairly long. And so here he's going to be, when he gets done, he's going to stand out in the crowd. Uh, not only because of what he's done, but he's going to stand out because he's going to be bald-headed and without a beard. And it's one thing to be bald because the Nazarites would do that when they'd start their vow. They'd shave their hair, and, but they usually left their beards. And it's very unusual for a Jewish man walking in the religion to be without a beard. And he takes his, he's to take it and he's, divide, he's to weigh it and he's to divide the hair into three parts. And we don't know how much it was because he doesn't tell us how much and nowhere in here doesn't tell us how much hair is going to be involved with this. And then he says, you shall burn a third of it in the city in the days of this, when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And remember in verse, in chapter four, we, he made that little clay tablet, drew the, city on it, laid the siege engines on it. So he's going to burn a third part when he's done with that activity. He's going to take a third part of it and he's to smite it with a knife. And this uh, means he's cutting up the, the, that third part of the hair is being cut. And then he says the third part he's going to throw into the wind. And going to be kind of interesting, you know, he's on this. And then he says he's supposed to take a few of them and, and attach them to the to the bottom fringe of his mantle. And doesn't say how he's doing it. And then he takes them later on and he's to burn those and just in, uh, in a symbol. So we're just gonna leave that right now because it's just a real quick, this is what he was told to do. And then God's gonna tell us why he did it. Verse five, thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem I have set in the midst of the nations of the countries that are round about her. And she has changed my judgments in, into wickedness more than the nations of this, and my statutes more than the countries that are around about her, for they have refused my judgment and my statue. They have not walked in them. Let me look here for a moment. Yeah. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you multiply more than the nations that are around about you and have not walked in my statutes, neither have you kept my judgments, Neither have you done accordingly to the judgments of the nations that are around about you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and will execute judgments in the midst of you in the sight of the nations. And I will do in thee that which I have not done, and whereunto I shall, will not do any more like unto, because of all the abominations." 
Therefore your father, the fathers shall eat the sons in the midst of you, and the sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgment in you, and the whole remnant of you I will scatter into the winds. And one more. Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all my, that your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore will I also diminish you. Be, neither shall my eye spare, neither shall I have any pity. All right, so God is telling Israel why all this bad stuff is going to happen to him. And he starts out, he says, this is Jerusalem. He, he's telling them that... You know, Jerusalem was set aside to be a great people. God, you know, they were God's chosen people, the Israelites. And yet they spend most of their time being disobedient. And I'm thinking about this. You know, this could just as easily be Jesus saying, this is my church. I've set you aside. I have made you special. And we look at the state of the church in, our, in this day and age right now. Yes, there's good churches out there preaching the gospel. But there's a lot of churches that do more evil than some of the, some of the world does. And the things they teach are not leading toward salvation and, and lifting up God. We've got churches that do things contrary to the Bible. And this has been true for generations now. But it's really bad now as a large percentage of what's called the Christian church. We're seeing them say, well, we don't care what God says. We're going to do things our way. We've got churches that believe in evolution, churches that believe that homosexuality is okay, churches that believe that fornication and adultery are okay, and not standing to God's standard on these areas. And this is what he's looking at Jerusalem. Jerusalem, I have set you in the midst of nations and the countries that are around about you. Jerusalem was supposed to be the light of the nations, the light of the world. In the end days, it's going to be the center of government during the millennial kingdom and into the eternity when the new Jerusalem comes down and it's the center of all commerce. And Jerusalem was set out to be special, to be the place that God said, this is where I am dwelling. These are my people. He calls the Jews his bride. They were the wife of God. And yet, they ended up doing more sin than the rest of the world, or sins that are worse. And I'm not sure if their sins were all that severe, or were they severe because of the fact that they knew better. When we sin as Christians and we know better, there's a greater condemnation for, for having known the truth than for the world who is just being disobedient because they don't know the truth. They don't have even the power to start obeying. But when we are Christians and we disobey God, when we know better, it's a, it's a really big deal. I don't know if pass is the right word, but he's not being as severe on them. Because they're the world. They're not his children. They, just don't know. they don't know better. And again, they're not his children. It's just like when you see children running around that aren't your children, uh, you don't discipline them because they're not your children. You, uh, you only discipline your own children. And when I, was, when I would be with my, with, uh, with my children, to me, they were, being mis you know, they were misbehaving because they knew my rules were stricter than people around them and everybody else was going, well, your children are so well behaved. And I'm looking at them, you know, with you guys, just wait till we get alone. And I start telling, you know, yeah, yes, I understood they were better than most kids, but my standards were like God's standards. They were higher than what most kids had to live by. And God was saying to his people, I've given you these rules. You know, 613 of them, five, five straight books of, of rules. And they disobeyed all of them. And there's a, there's a place where God is saying, these, these others, they're not my children. They're, they're doing wrong, and I'm not happy with them. But they're not my children. And we also see that when Israel fell, they seemed to fall pretty deep. But isn't that true? When you watch somebody who is claimed to be a Christian, or even was or claims to, and they fall away, and they, they, they become apostate, 
and turn wicked, they almost always go to an extreme opposite direction. It's not just fall away from God and, and, and don't go to church or read his Bible. It almost always goes way the other direction and they become worse than most of the world. And this is what God's saying about his people. You know the rules. You know what I've said. And you're acting worse than the world. They would, they would put God aside and, and worship idols. And it seemed like every time we looked in there and watched them as God took away their idols, was it wasn't just one or two idols. It was like every idol they could possibly worship was being worshipped in their land. The king would come along and he'd get rid of the, if you remember some of the things we said, he'd get rid of the groves and he'd get rid of the altars and he'd get rid of the high places. And, you know, it was multiple gods that the Jewish people would backslide to. And God is saying to them, you know, you were supposed to be the light. You know, and this is really important for us as Christians. We're supposed to be the light. These people who are supposed to be the light start being darkness and being great darkness. And we know what that means when we're Christians and, we're, and we let people know that we're Christians and people look at us and the word that usually they will use to, against Christians is they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And you know, it's a really sad thing because yes, we know that we can't be perfect. But how many times do Christians excuse their imperfections because they know that God's gonna give them grace and forgive them? Well, I just know that God will give me forgiveness. You know, I'm, I fell, but it's not that big a deal. The world's looking at it and saying, well, you're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't believe what they, they don't really believe what, they, what the word teaches. Now, granted, their, their view is way too high the opposite direction. They expect us to be perfect, and that won't happen. But I think sometimes we as Christians get way too far the other direction and say, well, you know, eh, I'm going to be forgiven. We need to find that balance in between there, not to condemn ourselves when we fall, but also not to give ourselves justification to fall. Because when we start giving, allowing that justification, we start mapping out that little area of God, well, God's just going to forgive me if I, I sin. We're no longer really responding to the holy righteousness of God. Because we're looking at it and saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. He's just going to forgive me. And yes, that is true. But we've talked about this. When we sin, there are consequences for our sins that we have to pay. And that is not, usually we think, well, I think I know what the consequences are. But think about the times that you've done, managed to fall into or do a sin. The consequences are always worse than you thought they might be. You got sicker, you, you got harassed by people around you. Uh, other people found out and made your life miserable. All kinds of things that makes the sin worse than you thought it would be. And you know, a lot of times we go, well, let's see. If I do this, you know, uh, let's see, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and uh, get drunk tonight. Well, I'll lose a little bit of money. I'm willing to pay the price of the money. I'll have a hangover tomorrow. I'll, I'll be willing to pay that hangover. And then you wake up the next day and find, find out you did a bunch of really stupid things that may, have, may even be illegal or nothing else ruined your reputation. And they weren't things you put into your calculation of what I'm willing to pay the consequences for. The consequences for our sin are always more than we think they are. And because we're spirit, God's children, those of us that are saved, we know that the consequences are even bad spiritually because there's spiritual consequences to sin. And we need to be careful because God is telling his people, you're my light. I set you in the middle of all these people and said, look at you. And we built this temple and I put these rules in here and I want you to show people how to be my followers, my children. And this is where we are supposed to be as Christians. We're light to the world. People are watching us all the time. All the time. Sometimes people you don't even know that are watching you are watching you. But your family is definitely watching you. Are you living this life of a Christian that you're telling me? And they're hard to please because they, they know our sins. They know our faults. When we fall down, they go, see, you're, not, you're nothing different. And then people are watching us. People are listening to what we say. When we're in a group, what are we talking about? What kind of words are we using? 
do we talk about God? When we're not aware of somebody talking about it, uh, listening to us, what do we talk about? I know a lot of, especially young youth pastors who will use a lot of language that they probably shouldn't be using because they're around to use so much and they start to pick it up. And they're using swear words, they're using, they're telling jokes that are very much off color, if not downright obscene. And, and then they're wondering why people aren't respecting them the way they need to be respected. And it's like, you're not walking in a godly manner. And how easy is it to fall into those kind of things? Well, if you spend a lot of time entertaining yourself with peop around people who talk that way or, or movies and TV shows that, that bring that kind of language out, then you will, it will absorb into your brain and you will find yourself being wrapped up into that kind of stuff. Which is why it's important for us to spend time around other Christians. Why it's important for us to meet with the body of Christ. Why it's important for us to be in God's Word. Because if we're filling our minds with the wrong things, it will come out. Jesus said, your sins will be shouted on the rooftop and nothing will remain hidden. We cannot hide our sins from others. God will reveal the sin if it's not repented of. And when I say repented of, that's not just say, God, I'm sorry. It is to repent, turn to God and walk away from it. God will come in and say, well, you, wanna, you want, don't want people to know? You're, you think it's hidden? You know, how many evangelists have had their sins shown to the world because that's the impact they've had is on the world. And God said, okay, you want to live in, in adultery? And think, and think you're going to get away with it. And all of a sudden it opens up and all these different people now know about the adultery. This happens because God says, I'm not going to let your sin be hidden. Now God's grace will still work out. He'll still bring work, work into it. But there's consequences for sin. And the world is looking at us. I, I used to love when I was working in the restaurants, I'd see somebody praying over their dinner and I would, if I had time, I'd go out there and say, I'm glad to see people who are standing up for God even in public, just to encourage them. But you know, how many times are people watching you? Of course, if you're going to pray, pray out in public, make sure your conversation and what you're doing matches what you're supposed to be doing. You know, don't, don't, don't pray for your dinner and then go get drunk in front of everybody. That's not, or, or talk about, you know, things that shouldn't be talked about. Because once you bring that first step in, everybody's watching you. They're going to say, what do Christians talk about when they're, when they're at dinner? What, you know, what, how do they act when they're out in public? And, you, and you, there's expectations. And God says, you are, I put you in the center, Jerusalem. You are a light to the world. And we've talked about this in, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy. God always desired the Gentiles to come to the temple and worship. Because he kept saying it. This is, this is the rule for you and the Gentiles. This is the rule for you and the Gentiles. And the Jews made life difficult for the Gentiles to be able to come to worship. They would not let them come and worship unless they became Jews. They proselytized into becoming Jews. That was the only way they would let them happen. And that was never God's intent, as we see very clearly in the New Testament. He wanted the world to come to him. He wanted the Jews to be able to say to the world, come, we have something that's worth worshiping. Do we project that to people? Come, we've got somebody who's worth worshiping, who's worth obe being obedient to who we want to lift up. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So our goal is to lift Jesus up. Lift him up, that people will see and be drawn to him. People are looking for fulfillment. This is, we've talked about this many times. People try to find fulfillment in alcohol and drugs and, and all the different sins. They always get left empty. Some people try to find it in work, and they work themselves to death, basically, trying to find fulfillment. If I just work hard enough, I make another, I make another million dollars, I make that first billion dollars, I make that trillion dollars, whatever it is, and I work really hard, and I make it to the top of the company, and then I'll be happy. And they find out that's not happy. You get the, the movie stars, and the sports stars, and the, and the singers making it to the top of the world and then committing suicide because it just didn't make them happy. 
we need God. We need to show people that God is what helps them. And we do that by being filled with them and having that joyful countenance. I love watching Christians because you can usually tell a Christian by their countenance. Are they generally happy? Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be happy all the time because nobody can be happy all the time. But we're to be joyful. We're to know that God's in charge. And, you know, do when people look at you, do they normally see somebody who is smiling or do they see somebody grumbling and complaining all the time? Now, there are some people that I know that are supposed to be Christians that grumble and complain all the time. I think maybe if they are Christians, they, ha they have far too small a God. I was talking to somebody just yesterday about how so many churches preach a God of love and grace and mercy and their God is pretty weak because they don't really realize that he judges the sin, that he, that he wants to, to help us. And they kind of forget the, the strong God, the God that has the power to deliver. You know, and I don't know if you've ever talked with anybody who seems to have that kind of God. You know, well, I can do whatever I want because my God just loves me and he'd never send anybody to hell because you know, he just loves everybody. Wow, what a wimpy God you have. My God is a righteous, holy God, just as he says he is. He also is full of grace and mercy. But there's consequences for wrong, and he punishes wrong. And we need to make sure we keep both sides of God in our mind. Yes, we love the fact that he's merciful, that he's gracious, that he loves us. But we always have to keep in mind that he is totally righteous and holy. If we want to come into his presence, we need to have our our sins confessed up to date and be covered in the blood of Christ and we go before God knowing that we've confessed our sins and we're, we've asked for forgiveness. And we come into that relationship with a God that's powerful. The God, the, the God that created the whole world in seven days. The God who flooded the entire earth in 40 days and 40 nights of rain and yet saved Noah. The God that destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for its sins. The God, you know, all through the scriptures, the God that does these great miraculous deeds. The God who tears down the walls of Jericho for the Israelites so they can walk into the city. You know, sometimes we forget about that God, the powerful God who's ready to give victory. And if we're not seeing that kind of God, when we start suffering and we start seeing things that may be wrong, we have a hard time believing that all things work together for good because we've just got a wimpy God that loves everybody and allows anything to happen. If we've got a God that is powerful, it doesn't matter what's going on because we know that he can make it for good. We know that he's in charge because he said he is. We need to keep in mind how powerful and strong our God is. He's God Almighty the most powerful one, omnipotent, all-powerful. There's nobody stronger than God. We need to keep this in mind. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knows everything we do. And there will be judgment for the wrong that we do. And there's benefit for those when we're obedient. But why is there punishment? Because we're his children and he wants us to do better. He wants the best for us. I was listening to the testimony of Dan Green. He's the owner, the owner and, uh, and founder of Holly Lobby. And he said God really put on his heart that he was not to give his kids any part of the business. They are workers in the business and they'll get a good share of it, but they have to earn whatever they get from the business. He goes, because by the third generation in most family-owned businesses, the kids have no idea what it means to work hard, and they're usually spoiled, rotten brats. And he doesn't want his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren to be ruined by the money of the company. Now, the money's there. They can, have, you know, they, they can work. They can have jobs and, and earn. And he'll pay them a little better than he pays most of his people, and, he pay, and they pay their people really well. But he says they've got to earn it. They can't expect just to pluck the fruit off the, off the tree of the business and, and think it is theirs to deserve. You know, this is the way our God is with us. 
He doesn't say, you're the king's kid, so here, I'm going to dump an entire uh, dump truck worth of treasure on you, and you don't have to do a thing for it. He says we're to go out and to work. We're to labor. We're to spread the gospel. We're to share the gospel. We're to edify one another, build up one another, pray for one another. And in the process of doing all of this, we earn the rewards in heaven that we will have forever when we don't have the sin nature to use them wrong. And it'll be a great blessing for, because of the rewards that we've earned. Israel is supposed to be that person shining out as a light. And in verse 6 he goes, you, you have changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations, my statutes more than the countries around you. For they have refused my judgment and my statutes, and they have not walked in them. Again, God gave them rules, and he says, all you've got to do is obey. Obey. But Israel would look at it and say, as most teenagers and children do, and even us sometimes when we look at God, God, you're just a cosmic killjoy. You don't want me to have any fun. That's why you don't want me to, to do whatever it is. And you know, we need to be careful that we don't have that attitude because it's not true. Just like when we were parents and our kids told us, you know, you just don't want me having any fun. Well, you're right. I don't want you going to your, your friend's house without their parents where there's going to be drinking and sex going on all night because it's not good. <laughs> It'll hurt you in the long run. And they're going, well, you just don't want me to have fun. And it's not that we didn't want them to have fun. It's just that we didn't want them to have the wrong kind of fun that would lead to, to worse hurts. And God's the same way with us. He knows that what we want to do is going to lead to problems down the road. Can't tell you how many times I talk to people and I go, well, what should I do about this situation? And especially when I've talked to them before and I'm going, well, if you had obeyed God before, you know, before you went out and, and committed fornication, you wouldn't be having this, this uh, boyfriend or girlfriend who's, who's uh, putting pressure on you for, for whatever reason and couldn't, you know, it may include, you know, a pregnancy involved. You know, you didn't obey God here. Why, why do you think we have an answer for you now? We can try to apply God's truth from this point forward, but you will still have the problems. God says, don't be drunk. And then if you go out and get drunk, and then you go, well, uh, how do I fix my problems? Well, you start going back to the back and don't get drunk in the first place. You know, you have to obey. Uh, and we've talked about this. How many times do we know God hates divorce? And we may say we agree with divorce, and then we have a friend who's having a really hard time in their marriage. And almost the first thing, and I've heard many Christians do this, say this, well, you just probably go get a divorce. Uh, Hold it. God said, no, let's, let's actually work out what happened, you know, what, how to fix this. Because the one thing I've seen in divorces is there's usually hard feelings between that couple for the rest of their life. I've seen people that have been divorced 30 and 40 years who are still angry at their ex. And it doesn't make any sense to me in the first place. You've been separated that long. But because there was a bond that people really don't understand, Jesus, God tells us that when they're joined together, they are glued together as one. When they ripped that union apart, it doesn't create the two individuals that started. It, comes, it creates two damaged individuals who are going to have to figure out how to fix their life from that point forward. And, it, you know, and I've seen some that are amiable, but when you really start talking about them, you can hear the bitter edge on their, in their voice about whatever. And throw in kids in the mix, and you're really in trouble because now you've got to be thrown together for the rest of your life. And so, again, we need to do things the way God says. Now, I'm not condemning anybody who commits any of these sins. I mean, they're all forgivable. They can all go forward. But you also know that if you've committed anything I've been talking about, you also know the problems that came along with those areas and we we know we're forgiven we move forward we let god heal our heal those areas of our life and he will but we need to follow god's rules it's so important when you're tempted really start thinking about what is the thing i should be doing what does the bible say about this how should i think about this this sunday when we were talking about you know prehistoric man god says there is no such thing because he's in the history <laughs> In the book, 
And we know the history of man from the very beginning. And yet, when we say, say the word prehistoric, we all start thinking about this evolutionary garbage that's in our brain of some guy that looks like a monkey with beard and grunts and carrying a club and, and having no intelligence. We need to be careful. What does God's word say about things? Change the way we think in little simple things. And maybe not so simple things because it has an impact on how we think. If we think that man was stupid in, its, in his creation and didn't know, any, you know, didn't know anything, then why do we have God walking with him in the, in the garden? Why is he immediately doing all these things? We need to be able to change the way we start thinking and, and look at those things. And then it says, because you have multiplied more than the nations that are around you and have not walked in my statutes, neither kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations around about you. This is an interesting, neither have done according to the nations around about you. God says, even though these other nations don't even have my rules, they have rules. Paul in Romans tells us this, that people know when they are doing wrong. All right. They may not have the same strict standards that God has for it, but everybody knows that there's right and wrong. Now, most of your right and wrong may have to do with you. Okay. You may know that it's wrong to steal from me and not have any problem stealing from somebody else, but you know that you by default know that stealing is wrong. Okay. You know that murder is wrong because you don't want to be murdered. You don't want your family murdered. Now, you may go out like Lemek did and go out and kill others, but you know, we ha the world has a perverted sense of right and wrong, but it does know right and wrong because it's instinctive. It's what God has put in us. And we, and he's telling the children of Israel, you're doing worse than even the nations around you who aren't, you know, have their own rules. They're not necessarily obeying them, but you know right and wrong and are being disobedient. We need to be careful because we know right and wrong. And... I know one thing about, at least for me, when I do wrong, even in a simple thing that is not really a big deal to the world, I know that it's wrong and God convicts me. And the longer we walk, walk with God, the more we're going to get convicted by little things in our life. Not just the big things, because over time we get the big things worked out. The big things are easy in one sense because you know they're wrong. And everybody around you knows they're wrong. But how about when it's time to build up somebody or to tear them down isn't that one an easy one to get involved with the way the world does tear people down i know it and it's true because i catch myself doing it every once in a while and i stop lots of other people from doing it around me it's easy for us in our sin nature to tear people down because that's what the flesh does we need to learn build up edify and the old adage, if you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything at all, is a very good place to be. You know, say good things about people. We don't need to be tearing one another down. We don't need to be tearing others around. And we don't need to be tearing ourselves down. It's real easy to do. And we all tend to do it with relative ease. The spiritual maturity is when you find yourself doing more edifying and building up than you're doing tearing down. And when you can do it with your family, then you know you're doing really well. Because it is so easy to tear down family members that you're with all the time. And people tear down family members. Why? Because of their family. They're supposed to love you. You can say whatever you want around them. I've really hated watching people who take that attitude, ripping their family to shreds. You know, And they're nice to everybody else, but they tear their family apart because the family is supposed to understand and, and know because they're yours. Uh, they're, they're in as much need for kindness and edification as anybody else, and probably even more. You know their faults, you know their weaknesses, you know how to push the buttons to irritate them. And of course, they know the stuff to push your buttons to, to irritate you and make you get upset of, over little things. But we need to be careful, and we need to really be praying, God, Help me to build others up. Does that mean we never say something negative to somebody? No, there are times when if we prayed about something and we're really concerned about something they're doing, it may be something, you know, I'm really bothered by what I've seen you do here. But if you're doing that all the time and you're not building up and edifying, 
that's not going to be right either. Edification, we're to build one another up, we're to edify. And it says in verse uh, 8, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and will ex execute judgment in the midst of you in the sight of the nations. This is a statement that I would hope none of us ever hear. Behold, even I am against you, when it's being God speaking. How terrifying this would be to have God actively opposed to you. Because yeah. he's the one that we go to for help. He's the one we go to for shelter. And yet we see all through the scripture where he actively opposes people to try to draw them to him. They didn't respond to his blessings, so therefore he gives them hard times. The children of Israel turned away from God and he sent them 40 years in the wilderness. Yeah. 40 years to get to some place that only took a couple weeks to get to. Uh, maybe, maybe two or three months if you really took your time. Uh, the book of Revelation is all about God trying to reach the people one last time. I'm sending you these trials, but I want you to come to me because I want you to recognize who it is and come. How many times has God put obstacles in your path to make you turn to him? And he does this, for one sense, he's put them there so that we don't run headlong down the, down the mountainside and into the, into the gorge and of death. So he puts blocks in there so that we have to go around them anyway and purpose to keep moving in that direction. And he's trying to stop us. He's trying to turn us around. He's trying to get us to stop and think. Because <laughs> how many times have you maybe you used the words, well, I just fell into this sin. Or, I don't know how I got there. I just found myself in this sin. Well, you know what? If you're his child, you walked around a lot of blocks and a lot of stumbling blocks to get into that sin. You know, lots of things to keep you from doing it. It might be a quick verse that popped into your brain. It might be a phone call from somebody encouraging you. Uh, it could be just the impression of God. But there are a number of roadblocks that you have to go around to get into sin when, you, when, you're, when his, you're his child. And believe me, I know. I know the roadblocks I have to walk around when I get finding myself in sin. I pretty much have to make some decisions that I'm going to not listen to God and, not, and, and do a lobotomy for a while so that I can fall into the sin. Because God is always there saying, don't do this, don't do this, you know better, you don't do this. Uh, and putting the right people, the right phone calls, the right activities in, in the way to make it that it's a problem. You know, it might be that Christian, Christian brother or sister waving to you from across the parking lot as you're walking into the bar. Hi! <laughs> you know, then you have a choice. You know, what am I going to do? God works in wonderful ways to try to stop us. Now, he did, you know, he doesn't do it in a physical way or an audible voice. It might be nice if he did, uh, but that's not how he does because the just shall live by faith. He does not wander, walk us through with a noise and a voice at every step, but that still small voice is in the back of your brain if you stop, and stop for a moment to think. Usually when we don't hear God, it's because we are busy. We're so busy with the activities of this world that we're not listening. We need to stop just a few minutes and listen, refocus. And this is what I say, sometimes we just need to, to sing a prayer, uh, sing a song, say a prayer, read the scriptures, meditate for just a few minutes on some scripture, which is why it's important to have scripture memorized so that you can just meditate, you know, uh, and know what you want to understand. Our ways are not his ways. His ways are higher than our ways. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. You know, dwell on him. Think about him and let him direct. Verse 9 says, And I will do in you that which I have not done. Hereunto I will not do any more like it because of all your abominations. He's getting ready to explain the, the hair <laughs> that was cut off. So let's look at, let's look at that because he said he's, he's going to do great, uh, horrible things to them and he's not going to spare them. He's not going to pity them. 
And that's kind of sad. I do not want to ever get to the place where God is not going to spare or pity me. I want him to always to be that way. Verse 12 says, A third part of you shall die with pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of you. A third part of Israel was going to die pestilence and famine. This happened when they were under siege. Jerusalem was under siege. And people starved to death. It's hard to imagine starving to death and sicknesses that that were rampant during that period of time. said, a third part of you shall fall by the sword in battle. And a third part would be scattered to the winds. Nebuchadnezzar came in with his army, encompassed the city, and starved them out. Many died just by starvation. Then there were some battles that a bunch of them died in, and then he took the rest of them out of the country, and he left a very small remnant. And he left the poorest of the poor to take care of the, the land. Not, not the best educated, not the wealthy. They wouldn't have known what to do with money if they had it. But that's who was left in this land to take care of it. And God said, this is what I'm doing to you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill two-thirds of you. And that's what two-thirds were killed. In the end times, 66% about from the revelation when you took the totals will die. Two-thirds of the people in this world that are left after the rapture is going to die from the plagues that God sends upon them. When God moves against us, terrible things happen. When God moves against, if some, if some Christian doesn't want to listen to God, terrible things will happen in their life. And I've seen very bad things happen to Christians who don't listen to God and aren't, aren't being a good testimony. I've seen their, their families get hurt. Their, and, and this is something that should scare us, especially husbands and fathers. Because when we're disobedient, God has to judge us. The family suffers. And this is something we need to take very seriously. The family suffering because of our disobedience is not a good thing. And that is something we need to be very aware of, to honor God, to follow him, so that our family gets blessed, not just us. I really don't care if, I I personally don't care if I get blessed. But I want to see my family get blessed. I want to see this church get blessed. If I get blessed, that's fine, that's fine, but I'm not looking for that to be the case. Now, God rewards those who are being honorable, but that humility says, I just want to see God, I want to see you be good to my family. I want to see you be good to my, to my church. Build them up, edify them up. And that's my whole goal. I want to see people that I come in contact with grow in Christ, grow spiritually. And so far, I've been able to say, yes, I've been able to watch that. I've watched three of my four kids grow really wonderful in in their spiritual walk and see them grow. I've watched so many people in this church growing spiritually, and it's a great blessing to see that, and I'm very encouraged by it. And I'm able to tell people, and they go, well, how's your church doing? I go, the people are growing fantastically. I might like to see some greater numbers, but that's me. You know, but I'm willing to go with what God gives us. You know, if God gives us just this few people and everybody's growing spiritually, I'm happy. Because that is the greatest benefit to be able to say people are growing in Christ. They're learning his word. They're learning to walk with him. They're learning to make better decisions that are spiritual decisions rather than worldly decisions. They're thinking more biblically centered rather than worldly centered. These are all things I want to see people happen in people that people are saying I start making my decisions not based on what the world does but on what God desires and this is where they're at and their judgment was that two-thirds are going to die and verse 13 says thus mine anger was accomplished and I will cause my fury to rest upon them and I will be comforted and they shall know that I the Lord have spoken in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them when the Israelites went into captivity that second time, they started realizing what they had lost. Now, not all of them, 
Some of them got very happy just being in the world. And when it was time to go back, many of the Israelites didn't want to go back. They had gotten very comfortable in 70 years in their new land. They had built businesses. They had built synagogues. They were basically part of the world. They were still Jews. They practiced Judaism. But in many ways, they acted and thought like the world. This is where some Christians get to. They get so comfortable around the world that they start acting and thinking like the world. And God is saying, I want you to come out. It's time, you know, when it's time to come, come out. We need to be ready to listen to God. How often, he says, I've punished them, but I want them to know that it's me. I did it and I love them. And sometimes it's hard to recognize love and discipline. Uh, my, my dad's fav favorite statement was, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me as he got ready to give that spanking out. And I never understood that until I had my own kids and it was time to give them a spanking. And I go, I don't want to hurt these kids. And yet I knew they needed to have the, the punishment for what they did wrong. And I found myself telling them the same thing. And I knew as I was telling them, they were probably thinking the same thing I was thinking when I was about their age. Yeah, right, Dad, um, you know, whatever you say. Uh. But, you know, God does not want to punish us. He just knows that he has to. Because he knows that if he doesn't punish us, we will continue doing the wrong things. There has to be the pain associated with the wrong decisions to keep us from making the wrong decisions. And we keep making wrong decisions because we're, we feel that we can handle the pain associated with it, or we don't care about the pain associated with it, or we don't recognize the pain associated with it. But God lets us know, obey me and not have to suffer. Disobey and there's suffering. And he's not, you know, God is not a, you know, up there just saying, well, who do I get to, who do I get to beat and discipline today? As, as any good parent was not in that ballpark saying, who, you know, which of my kids do I get to discipline today? Usually the parent is, oh, you're misbehaving again. I've got to punish you again this time. And if they, if they, enjoyed, that pun if they enjoyed punishing the kids, they shouldn't be punishing the kids. There's just, that's wrong. If you're enjoying it, it's wrong. There's got to be, to inflict pain on your children needs to be something that brings pain because you want to be giving just enough that they have the pain to be obedient. And God's saying, I've given you, I've given you this pain and I will obey. Come back, he said, he told them that he was going to call them back. Jeremiah told them they were only going to be in captivity for 70 years, which is a full generation basically, a generation and a half. Verse 14, Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are around about you in the sight of all that pass by. So it shall be a reproach and a taunt, an instruction and an astonishment unto the nations that are around about you when I shall execute judgments in you in anger, in fury, for furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken it. God was making them an example so that other nations, so the nations around them would see. This is what happens to the disobedient child. Now, the problem with that is most of the world looked at, would look at it and say, wow, their God is pretty weak. He, does, he can't keep them from being, you know, being punished and keeping out of trouble because that's the world's way of thinking. All right? And yet God's saying, I'm doing this, so it's going to be an example. If you're disobedient, this is what happens. Sometimes there are a handful of people that can actually learn from other people's mistakes and punishments. Very far and few between. But we need to be able to see, wow, I don't want that punishment. Maybe I shouldn't do what they did to deserve it. Sometimes you'll find people in the workforce that are like that. Well, so-and-so lost their job because they did this and this. Maybe I won't do that if they're smart. But and God is saying, I've made you a reproach or a, or a, a scorn and, a, and an instruction and a taunt and an instruction. I'm going to teach a lesson by what you're going through to the nations. And this was God's desire. It wasn't to just 
hurt them for hurting them's sake. He wanted it just as he's promised us, all things work together for good. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to come back. Have you ever been impressed by somebody's repentance and their return back to God in spite of what they've done? I've seen it and I've been very impressed sometimes by that. They've fallen, they look like everything was broken up and they repented and, and, and I've even heard people say they got saved because they watched how somebody humbled themselves before God and repented because they saw that there's a difference in that person's life. They're not, they're not trying to justify their sin. They're not trying to uh, say it's okay. We're really doing bad if we are trying to justify our sin. Well, God, you know, I, it just was. It just happened. God really wants us to confess and I've told you, in Greek, that's homologeo, to say the same thing as. God isn't wanting us to say, well, God, I made a mistake. That's not confession. God, I, I slipped. That's not a confession. God, I have sinned against you. I have done wrong. And I have really done this, and I know that it's a sin. Forgive me. At that point, you've entered into confession. You've called what you've done a sin. And Satan is trying hard to get sins reclassified into sicknesses and mistakes. And we see this over and over again. Alcoholism, you know, just using that word immediately tells you we're talking about the disease of alcohol. Um, God calls it drunken, being drunks. And the world is saying, no, it's just, it's just a sickness. Well, yeah, if you drink long enough and, and bad enough, you can get into, into a sickness but it started out by being a drunkard and a sinner. And it doesn't excuse it that just because your body is now desiring it and needing it and demanding it does not change it that it started out in drunkenness and a sin. We have people that are now, they're not thieves, they're kleptomaniacs. They just can't help themselves. They're not saying the same thing God says about it. God says, you're a thief. And then he says, I have sent upon them evil arrows of famine, which is which shall be for their destruction, and which I send to destroy you, and I will increase the famine among you and break your staff of bread. So God's saying, I'm going to make things worse. And especially for those of his children. If we do not respond to his correction and his, his right and wrongs, his punishment keeps increasing to the point where we better make the decision to follow him. Because the final destruction would be to just take us home. You know, if you're not going not to be obedient, he just takes us home to heaven. And, and because we're, but he's going to go a lot of things before he does that. There's going to be a lot of punishment before that. He's going to try to bring us into repentance and confession for our own good. Because for everything we don't confess on, that's an area of weakness in our life that keeps us from being rewarded in that area. And we're losing rewards every day that we're disobedient with God. Now, granted, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you're going to heaven, rewards are, you know, we, we tend to not care about the rewards. But I have a feeling that in heaven we probably will care about the reward somehow. Because God makes a pretty big deal of it, out of getting rewards on this, on this earth and doing, doing the righteous acts that are going to be rewarded. Jesus himself said that. Take from him who who didn't use his one talent and give to him that had the ten that I, the five, then we added ten, five more to. What does it mean in heaven to be rewarded? I have no idea. All I can look at it is from our physical plane where we have greed and, and desires and we want every word where we can because it's, we want to use it upon ourselves and who knows what it means when we get to heaven. But it's very clear that God talks about them so there's some importance to them even in heaven. Uh, we can't fathom what that is. What does it mean to be in charge of 10 cities, he told the one guy. You, know, you did well, and I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. I don't know. What does it mean to be in charge of 10 cities? Probably that you're in charge of a lot of people and be able to teach and educate and whatever else it might be involved. I don't know. I'm a teacher. I, can, I hope that I get to teach for all, my, all of eternity. It would not... It would make me very happy to teach for all of eternity because I love to teach. And as I've said, I don't believe that we're going to be just core dumped everything that God knows into our head and we'll, we'll know all the answers. 
We may know a lot more answers than we do now, but I think we're going to be learning for all of eternity because God is going to let us learn because he's always going to be greater than we are. He's always going to know more than we do. So we'll get to spend all of eternity learning. And if by any chance we ever learn everything that God knows, he'll just create more stuff for us to learn. So we'll never, never run out of things to learn. And the last verse, So will I send upon you famine and evil beast, and they shall bereave you, and pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I shall bring the sword upon you. I, the Lord, have spoken. In Leviticus 26.22, God said, I put it before you a curse. And if you disobey me, these very things were going to happen. Pestilence and, and beasts were going to overwhelm the promised land. And we saw that happen more than once throughout that time. Uh, when through the period of the judges, it happened several times. And through, through several of the kings, it happened. And wild beasts started coming in. You know, it's amazing what God can keep out of your life when you're following him. And this is the last challenge I make. If we follow and obey God, we may not even be aware of all the things that he's protecting us against. The children of Israel were not aware that the wild beast were being kept out of the land by God when they were being righteous. All they knew is they didn't have to deal with the lions and the bears and all these things because God kept them outside the border. In our lives, when we're obedient to God, there's many things he keeps out of our life that aren't, don't bother us. Many temptations that don't come our way because he is blocking them. He allows some just to make sure that we're going to follow him, but he keeps many things. And this is one thing I've said. When we get to heaven, and I believe that when we see our life rolled out in front of our eyes at the Bema seat, we're going to be shocked at how much God, number one, protected us from that we had no no knowledge of. Number two, how close some bad things happened that we never were at knowledge of. And then be able to praise him for the things we did know about anyway. But, you know, we are in a spiritual battle every moment of our life. And there is more going on around us than we are ever going to be aware of. There are angels taking the, taking the hits and blocking things that would normally come our way. And there's the spiritual walls that are around us that God has allowed us to be able to build up. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to look and say, well, thank you, God, you did so much more than I was ever aware of. Wow, God, if I had really, I'd, have, I'd probably died of a heart attack if I'd have known all that stuff was going on around me. And, you know, we're in the middle of a battle. It probably would be something that we would die of if we actually knew how much was going on around us. If you've ever watched any movies that have especially hand-to-hand -hand combat or, or close combat, you know, it's, there's some scary situations in that. We're in the middle of fierce battles daily. That's the kind of stuff that's going on around us that we're not aware of. And we go, a lot of times, we go wandering blindly around without the armor of Christ on and without prayer and without, without the sword and without memorizing scripture and without without trying to put the breastplate of righteousness on, the helmet of salvation, you know. And we're out there walking around the battle wondering why we're getting hit on all sides because we've forgotten that we're in a battle. We are in a battle and we need to stay aware that we're in a battle and be ready. Does that mean we won't have hard times? No, God will allow hard times. Does that mean that you won't get martyred? No, many people have gotten martyred for their, for their salvation. But God will give the grace for whatever we have to go through. And it's all his will. The safest place to be in the world is in the middle of God's will. Because he's going to protect you in that spot. Nothing will happen. And the really good news is you won't die until God says it's time to come home. And this is something we've told people when we, when we used to do witnessing in, in some really interesting places. We're here to preach the gospel. If God wants you to die, you can die. If not, but if it's not your time to die, it doesn't matter what is going on around you. We need to be able to trust God that strongly. Nothing will happen to us unless God allows it to happen. Because I can, we've already told you, Satan wants us dead. Satan doesn't want just Christians dead. He wants all of humanity dead because he wants to take and hurt God. And God is not letting him have his desire. Just like Job, he has to ask for permission on what he can do and how much he can do. 
Now with those that are his, he can do more to them than he can to Christians, but he still can't take their life until God says it's time for their life to be taken because God has given them every opportunity to come to him. Many, many, many opportunities in some cases. Sometimes we look at the sinners and we go, God, how can you be so nice to them? They're not going through anything. God's saying, I want, I'm trying to bring them to me. I want them to come to me. You just let me deal with them. You take care of yourself. And this is what's important for us. Most of us can't take care of ourselves very well, much less the rest of the world. And yet, how many times do we try to take care of the rest of the world? Whether it's our family, our friends, our workers, our, our you know, we're trying to take care of them, and most of us can barely take care of ourselves, me included, and I can barely take care of myself. And I've told people like that. You know, Pastor, what should I do in this case? I go, go look in the, you know, read the Bible and find out what God wants you to do. Because the last thing I'm going to do is tell somebody what to do and then have them get mad at me down the road. Well, I, you told me to do this, and I don't need that responsibility. I've got enough trouble keeping myself out of trouble. I'll tell people what God's Word says, encourage them to get into God's Word, but the decision has to be yours. The decision has to be mine on how I'm going to live. And I'm going to go forward. And when I stand before God, then I get to answer to Him. When He says, Ralph, why did you do this with your family? Or why did you do this with the church? I'm going, uh, well, God, this is what I was thinking. Oh, wow, and I'm seeing it from the other side. It's not a very good thought, was it? Or, God, this is why. And he goes, good. It was a biblical reason. We need to be in his word. We need to be thinking biblical and acting biblical. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we ask you to give us the strength to, to live godly to live according to the biblical standards that you are revealing to us. Help us learn to be humble and surrendered at all times so that we will be able to hear your voice. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.